Good morning and welcome to the Jesuit Institute Hour here on Radio Veritas. We are now four years since um, the election of Pope Francis to the pontificate. And so that happened uh, four years ago on Monday. And so we're going to be thinking now about what that pontificate really has meant and how it has changed the direction of the church or the nature of the church or if it has or if it hasn't. And to help us explore that, we're going to be chatting today to Father Anthony Egan. And then a little bit later today, we're also going to be chatting to Pamela, who's a new member of staff at the Jesuit Institute. And we're going to be having a conversation around xenophobia. So I'm Francis Correa, and it's really nice to be with you all today. And good morning to Anthony. Morning, Francis. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Good. Well, Anthony, I was just wondering, if we were to wind your mind back four years to, uh, to the announcement of Francis as the new Pope, can you just go back to what your thoughts and your desires, your, your, your wonderings were at that time? Well, I can actually tell you exactly the day it happened. Because I was at a dinner that had been given by the Faculty of Health Sciences, where I worked part-time as a lecturer. And it was an afternoon tea. And I felt I wanted to get back to the community by supper time. So so we were sitting around having tea in the restaurant to have set up in the Medical Schools Museum on the medical campus. And I remember I said to them, I've got a rush. Uh, I've got... uh, got to get back to the community, at which point my professor said, oh, yeah, to watch the Pope get elected. I said, nah, not going to happen until Monday. There's no clear person that we can see in the running, the speculation all the way around. And, of course, by the time I got home, which was like 25 minutes later, uh, the, the Pope had been elected, and I walked in to see Francis step onto the balcony. Wow. So, I mean, that's, that's, that's how clear it is in my memory. And I think, you know, people were, at that stage, very concerned about the state of the church. I mean, uh, Benedict had resigned, which was a sort of first time in living memory. I mean, the last time a pope had resigned was somewhere in about the 15th or 16th century. And so everyone was wondering, now, what to do next? I mean, where, where's it going to go? And I think people weren't too sure of exactly who might be the the candidate. I don't think there were any clear, you know, people who were front runners. And so what I thought would be, will, will they will they go for somebody outside of Europe because it seemed to be the right thing to do? Mm. But then I thought again, they need someone who's acceptable to the Italians, and they need someone who isn't too old but isn't too young. And so, and also I thought myself, they must have nothing to do with any of the kind of corruption that's been going on in the Vatican, which of course I think was one of the big reasons why Benedict resigned. I think he just found the situation untenable. And so there we go. I mean, I, I, I actually, a few days before, I'd actually speculated that if those were the criteria, it could have been Bergoglio. But I hadn't really believed it. I thought, well, it'd be nice, but uh, unlikely. They're never going to elect a And Jesuit. then, of course, it got elected. I know. <laughs> it's quite amazing. And I must confess, that first few minutes 
on the balcony, watching him on the balcony, was something that just struck me like I'd never been struck before in my life by a pope getting elected. Um, I mean, I was born in the Paul VI era, although I was way too young to be conscious of Paul VI. I mean, the first pope I was conscious of was JP1, who lasted only a month. Mm. And then the rest of the time it was JP2 and Benedict. And, yeah, I mean, when I saw on the balcony the way he spoke, I thought, wow, there's something new here. Firstly, he wasn't dressed in, you know, frippery and, 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 and fancy fur things and stuff like that. He was just simple. Yeah. Totally simple. And the immediate kind of warmth exuded from the man when he walked out, you know, like, good evening. In fact, it was good afternoon, so he, he got his Italian wrong. But that doesn't matter. Nobody minded. Everyone understood exactly what he was saying. And then, of course, when he asked the people to pray for him before he gave them his blessing, I thought to myself, wow, that is a change. That's a game changer. Are we going to see a change? Are we going to see perhaps a renewal of the Second Vatican Council coming? And so, in a sense, from that moment onwards, I mean, I've been watching him with great interest. So let's stay with that sense of the Second Vatican Council and a kind of a renewal of the, the themes of the Council. To, to what extent do you think Pope Francis has really rooted himself in the Second Vatican Council? And, and to what extent has, has, he, has he not, Anthony? I mean, what are your feelings around that? My, my sense looking at him is that I think he certainly does believe in the Council. And I mean... I, you know, there are two kinds of ways of looking at the council. And there's a sort of debate around, was the council a change in the way things were done? Was it simply a continuity? And many people said, oh, well, you know, not a lot of doctrine changed. And to some degree, that was true. But I do think that continue was about change. Change in the way we did things, change in the way we saw things change in the way the church was trying to see itself and be seen. And I think we look at, for example, what Francis has done in terms of greater conversation and dialogue within the church, um, symbolized, I think, by the, by the process he, he initiated, I mean, obviously it was done unevenly, mm-hmm. of dialogue and conversation with the, the people of God uh, over the thing of the Eternal and the family. Mm. Um, the concern for things like the environment is an obvious development from stuff that had begun in the council in Gardimut's days and others talking about an engagement with the world. In a sense, it, the, the ecological movement was only starting in the 1960s. So it, it isn't very prominent in, in the council documents. But in a sense, the kind of mentality of conversation with the world, engagement with science, things like that, they are there in the council, and in a sense that they are applied into yeah. you know, the environmental question. I mean, I uh, think. The, mm, I mean, I, just yeah. as you say that, I was kind of thinking about those early chapters in Guardian at Spares. The, yeah. All the chapters around science and and the appropriate use of science, they they flow directly into the concerns of Laudate Si. Precisely, and I, I mean. 
in the day we're talking in broad terms as a council would have to. Mm. But I think what's so exciting about it is that he also brought back this idea, I think, of the church as the people of God, mm-hmm. which is in Lumengenzo. Yeah. And, and this whole thing about that, and, and it kind of changed attitude. I, I, you know, look, I mean, I was ordained 15 years ago, and I was ordained in an area where I think clericalism had grown again. It was a kind of renewed clericalism, um, and, and that simply, you know, changed, I think. Francis, at least he's trying to change it. And I think the hostility that he gets in some circles in the church is, I think, linked to people who are uncomfortable with his less sort of clericalist mindset. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's that's one of the things I see is very important to to this pontificate of what he's been doing. I think the other thing too is the way in which. You know, this, is, this is almost a kind of political science analysis of it. The way in which the church's institutions, public image, has changed. I mean, I'm afraid that by the end of Benedict's reign, all the all the stuff that has been linked into the child abuse scandals and all those other things that have, that have, that have been through the church had really tarnished the image of the church. Mm. such an extent that even in fairly traditionally Catholic countries, there's been a kind of backflip, almost a kind of reaction against it all. And it manifested in very deep anti-clericalism and mistrust of the Church. And even when the Church tried to say something sane or sensible um, on a social issue, it was almost as if they were being looked at and saying, well, yeah, you're saying the right thing, but, you know, we don't trust your practice. Didn't trust you. Mm. Uh, and, and I think what Francis has done brilliantly has been to renew trust in the church and in the office of papacy. I mean, you know, it's weird that today you have people, atheists, uh, other Christians, Jews, Muslims, Hindus, who are saying, you know, we look around for someone with integrity and with a sense of moral moral value uh, in public life, and all we get are sort of psycho presidents in different places, corrupt politicians, or or people who are are just, you know, benignly indifferent in every respect. The one public figure who seems to be speaking up for basic things like dignity, human rights, refugees, marginalized people, is the Pope. Yeah. So much so that, I mean, I, I read a fascinating article about a week ago by a journalist, a Muslim journalist from Al Jazeera, mm-hmm. who basically said Pope Francis is the only <laughs> politician in the world at the moment who's, who is, in whom I have any vague trust. And I think that is such a change, that's a sea change. Well, that is so a sea change. Yeah, and that, that I think is so important because, in a sense, I mean, I don't think he has, in a sense, radically reformed the church. He hasn't sort of lurched the church to the left. I think, look, objectively, he hasn't. But what he's done is he starts up a conversation. Uh, what, I, what I've rather 
like as well. I mean, maybe this is just my own sort of personal cynicism. But it's so delightful now that, that, that there are as many dissidents on the right as there have been on the left in the church speaking out. Uh, and the point is that Francis just sort of smiles and carries on. And there is a sense that he, you know, some people would say, you know, why doesn't he deal with these, you know, dissenting voices? But in a sense, by by making an example and saying, I'm not going to sort of, you know, slap every single conservative who objects to me or calls me rude names or anything, uh, it's actually a way of saying, you know, we can be the church and we can be different factions. And we can and we can actually try and find a way of working through these things without resorting to the kind of bully tactics that I'm afraid were part of the last thirty odd years. Yeah. Uh, where anyone who held a dissident view would be slapped down. Uh, and I think that's that's a, that's an interesting change. And you know, the willingness to sit down and have a conversation and and then just to participate rather than to be the sort of the guy who seems to be with his advisors behind him, you know, making a statement and getting all the bishops to say yes to, you know, actually getting the bishops to come to that synod and sit down and argue with each other and fight with each other. And yes, coming up with a compromise statement, which probably appealed to neither the left nor the right in the church, but which at least gave the space for uh, further reflection, conversation, uh, engagement and and offered at least you know some signs of hope for change, but not just change for the sake of change, but a change that has been reasoned through, carefully embraced, uh, raising you know a whole broad range of insights and issues. And I think that's going, that has been the, the four-year legacy I think so far. I mean, I think it's very you know it's 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 far more lively and vibrant now. I think. Rather than the kind of, I don't know, it all started this, you know, it sounds really, you know, quite impious of me. But, I mean, you know, before Francis, my sense was the way the church operated, even in these big public stuff, a lot like, um, you know, what I've read of, for example, the way things were and are handled in places like the People's Republic of China, with these great big shows of other things of everyone, and they all acclaim everything equally, and there's no, there's no sort of real debate. Just you know, we endorse with, with great applause everything everyone says, and I think that has changed in the church, and I think that's important because I think the exercise of that kind of critical reflection. Uh, a willingness to look at theology, a willingness to ask questions, a willingness to put those questions in the context of the challenges of our time. That, for me, is so important. And that, for me, is Vatican II. Yeah. So, in a sense, in that respect, I feel that I feel I'm back in the council era, <laughs> in some ways. Uh, and, and, and I think, for me, as someone who is a strong supporter of Vatican II, uh, would be you know, absolutely delightful. Well, as you know, we, we, I'm also a, a kind of Vatican II uh, aficionado, that's the right word, but uh, a real love for, the, for the, the documents and love for the spirit of the, the, the council and a real need, really, I think, for the church to take the council seriously. And so what you're saying is, is inspiring to me also the sense of, 
of an invitation not to a place of ultimate truths, not to a place of, of complete clarity between right and wrong, and, but in fact to a place of dialogue, of, of living in the mess of the world, which, which is what I'm hearing you talking about, that, that Francis is re-inviting us to live in the real world, and in the real world, uh, things don't look the way they may look in a catechism book. They, they look messy. Yeah. You see, I think, you see, we must always be searching for ultimate truth. Uh, and we must always be seeking the good. But, of course, we must recognize that so often uh, these ideals, these, these absolutes, are very hard to find or apply or, 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 or even, in a sense, uh, express the real world, in this reality, because there are so many other things that come together. And so in a sense, rather than try and come up with a kind of a set of absolutes which no one, everyone affirms and no one practices, yeah. rather to sort of recognize that we have these values, these principles, these visions, I'm obviously talking from an ethical point of view, but recognizing as well that, you know, within those values and visions, you know, there are questions of how we apply them and how we embrace them in such a way that we are seen not as you know, a world divided between a handful of perfect people who have who have the truth, know the truth, live the truth and got the truth and are saved and the rest who are obviously you know, Lost. inferior and maybe by the grace of God they will be saved but rather you know, that we have people striving for that for that, that greatness that, that, that truth, that, that moral vision, and, 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 and a sense of union with God in a, in a way that we can, you know, we, you know, it doesn't mean we don't deal with things that are right or wrong, but rather that we recognize that even in the, the, you know, proclaiming what is right and proclaiming what is wrong, we're also having to find ways and means of, in a sense, interpreting them And that's, I think, his own personality. I mean, you know, when he says, I'm a sinner redeemed by God, I don't think he's just being pious. I think that is, that is his true, deep belief. That is who he is. And, I mean, he will look at his life and say, I made some terrible mistakes in my life as a priest, as a provincial of the Jesuits in Argentina. I, and in other cases, perhaps that was all I could do. And, and recognizing that limitation, and yet saying, yeah, and we're all limited. We must strive for what is good. We must strive for a deeper faith and, 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 and do all the sort of just things. But we have to always ask ourselves, what is it now that we can do? Yeah. And I think that's his value and importance to the church today. Well, Anthony, thank you very much. That's all. That all sounds uh, very clear and quite inspiring and yeah, I hope for at least another four years of Francis's pontificate to to really help the church to shift. <laughs> at least another four years, really help the sh church to shift. I think from that over focus on the sacramental life and 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 to re-embrace that sense of being called to be involved in the world, the church of well, the world. You see, I, you see, I think I think you know if we think of it in, in Rana's terms, the whole of life is sacramental, and I think that's what he has. 
Yeah. Um, the great danger is we limit ourselves to that kind of the sacraments as in the Eucharist and the, you know, the, the sacraments that are defined in, in the Church and the practice in the Church. They are important, but they are part of a much deeper reality. I mean, I remember a lovely expression, I think it's, I think it's Rana, and maybe, or no, it should be, it's, or should be, he says, remember, Christ is the sacrament of God's relationship with us. So Christ is the sign of God's love to us. And the Church is the sacrament of Christ. It's the expression of Christ's ongoing love in the world. Mm. And the sacraments of the Church are the ways in which that sacrament is expressed. And I think that also means that we, we have to look at the sacramentality of the world itself, the sacramental meaning, so to speak. Absolutely. That's a topic for another day. So thank you very much, Anthony, and we will no doubt be talking to you again soon about some probably ethical issue. Thank you, Francis. Okay. Goodbye. Thank you. That was Father Anthony Egan from the Jesuit Institute talking about the four years of Pope Francis' pontificate here on the Jesuit Institute Hour at Radio Veritas. Now we're going to listen to a piece of music, Bernadette Farrell's Bread for the World. <laughs> 